This message is brought to you by ABC Church in Ammonford, West Wales. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org. Prophecy and prediction in the end times, with a little subtitle, Where Are the Prophets? Do you know what? If there's one gift that everybody in the world would love to have, it's the ability to see the future. What are clairvoyance for? Clairvoyants supposedly see the future. <coughs> 20 years ago, I remember seeing an article in the paper where the clairvoyant for Lady Dyad said that she foresaw a wonderful future for her. She would marry Dodie. They'd have two kids. Two weeks later, Lady Dyad was dead. And the next day, that clairvoyant turned up on morning news. And she said, yeah, I saw something dark in her future. Really? You could have told her. You could have told her maybe to put a seatbelt on and perhaps she wouldn't have been killed. Clairvoyance is nonsense. Then you get political pundits, people who are trying to see the future. Did anyone see this election coming? I didn't. Then you get financial forecasters who are trying to tell us what's going to happen in the financial markets. Weather reports. They're always trying to tell us what the weather's going to be. But they always begin their weather report by telling us what the weather's been that day. Which is weird, because I knew what the weather was that day. (laughs) And it wasn't what you said it was going to be yesterday, which is why I got wet. Then you get earthquake predictors. People try and predict earthquakes. I think that's a very difficult prediction skill. Uh, But in Italy, they actually imprisoned a group of earthquake earthquake predictors for failing to predict some earthquakes. So obviously the Italians have a higher standard than the rest of the planet. People look out for asteroids to see if they're going to hit the Earth. Climate change experts try and tell us what's going to happen with the climate. You get global trend predictors, advertising consultants, astrologers who believe that the whole of the human race are divided up into 12 groups, and all of those 12 groups do all the same thing. It's all a load of nonsense. What people want to know is what's going to happen in the future. And the first telescopes weren't built to look at the stars, but to look for ships arriving in Venice Harbor. Because if you could see the grain ship arising arriving before anybody else, then you'd know, sell your grain now, because the grain price is going to drop when that grain ship arises. And if we could just see the future by one hour before the lottery, we'd all be multi-millionaires, wouldn't we? (laughs) Sometimes people know what the future's going to be because they shape it. They make it. Take Apple, for example. They've been shaping the world for the last 20 years. The latest prediction from Apple is that the smartphone will be dead within five years. They're about to introduce the smart spectacles, which involves... AR, augmented reality, and they think that's going to replace the smartphone. You'll put these spectacles on, and whenever you look at anything, whatever it might be, somebody in a coffee shop, or you might be in a museum, or looking at a castle, along the side of the spectacles will come up all of the digital information that is recorded about that person, that item, or that thing. People will no longer be looking down at their iPhones. They're going to be looking up and staring at each other through dark (laughs) glasses. Isn't that going to be fun? Then you get people who pretend to be prophets, like Nostradamus. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He said that he could see the future, but he couldn't. All he did was just make up some crazy statements, and people think that he somehow saw the coming of Hitler and all the rest of that. Then you get prophecies. The Jehovah's Witnesses at the end of the 19th century made a number of predictions about 1914. They said on the one hand that would be the year that Jesus Christ returned, Then they said that would be when the devil would be thrown down to earth. Then they said that would be the date of of, uh, Armageddon, great battle of the end. Uh, 
And it's interesting, Christian leaders have often criticized the Jehovah's Witnesses for getting that wrong. But do you know what? 1914 was the most important year in the last 500 years. We're still living in the after effects of 1914. The First World War, the founding of the State of Israel, the rise of communism, the rise of fascism, the Second World War, the Holocaust, the hydrogen bomb, it all comes from that date. And they were the only ones to see it. They didn't fully understand the significance of it, but you've got to give them credit for that. This was before they became a cult. They began as a, a home group movement that went kind of sour. And when you look at the church, the church has a terrible record of prophesying and predicting the future. I mean, the church didn't see the coming of Adolf Hitler. Go back to the 1920s, and the church thought that Mussolini was going to be the Antichrist. But Mussolini was a jerk. He didn't do anything other than destroy his own country. You've got to look to a poet, W.B. Yeats, 1919, his poem, The Second Coming, prefigures the coming of Adolf Hitler. It's a terrifying poem. He saw it. The church didn't. Do you know, sometimes it's hard to predict the future of the world. But very often it's easy to predict the future of individuals. Why? Because humans are creatures of habits. I mean, I am an habitual person, okay? I live my life according to certain patterns. I go to bed at 10. I read for half an hour. I watch Family Guy. I fall asleep. <laughs> I wake up at half past six. I make a cup of tea. I turn on YouTube and I watch a one-hour lecture from Yale University. Welcome to my world. And I'm sure you have similar patterns, although different patterns of behavior. And I tell you this now. If I know how you've lived your life for the last few years, I can predict how you'll live your life for the next few years. Why? Because prediction used to be my job. And I was very good at it. Risk assessing is all about prediction. And I've got to say, the coppers used to love me. When we had those mapper meetings, I wouldn't be vague or general. I'd say specific things. I'd say, this guy, right? He'll be arrested between leaving the prison gates and getting to the train. This guy, you need to have the railway police checking him out all the way. This guy, he's going to go through his license. This guy, these are the conditions under which you'll offend. If those conditions aren't met, guess what? You'll be fine. Cops loved it because the cops had very limited resources. And, of course, they wanted to allocate those resources as best as possible. And they'd been used to wishy-washy liberal social worker probation officers who'd say things like, oh, he's changed. Oh, he, I've been to see him. He's different. He's not going to offend. Yeah, right. And I'd say things like, do you know what? He'll kill again because he loves it. And that's the nature of human nature. It is so predictable. The trouble is this. It's not that change is difficult. It's that people choose not to change. And they don't change because they don't want to. What they tend to do is this. They ask for help dealing with the negative consequence of the way they're living their life. And I find it very difficult sometimes praying for people. Because very often I'm being asked to pray to remove the negative consequences of the decisions people have made. But those negative consequences are there to help you change. So God's not going to remove them. It's the only way in which sometimes God can get us to behave in a different sort of way. But it's important to understand prediction is not prophecy. I could predict with absolute certainty that you know, we're all going to die. Everybody dies. Death and taxes, inevitable, but some people don't pay taxes. We all die. And yet, you look at the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. I will tell you a mystery, says Paul. We shall not all die. 
but we shall all be changed. You see, prophecy contradicts prediction because prophecy is the word of God about what he intends to do. Prediction is probability. It is what is likely to happen, but it doesn't mean that it will. So this morning, I'm going to predict the future for yourself, for the church, and for the world in 40 minutes. But just because I predict it doesn't mean it'll happen. (laughs) Scripture this morning is from Amos chapter 3, verse 2 to 8. You are the only people I have known of all the families of the earth. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless Yahweh brings it? In the same way, the Lord Yahweh does nothing without first revealing his will to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord Yahweh has spoken, who can but prophesy? So, predicting the future for you. Now, I've got to say right at the beginning, sometimes I cause offense to people, okay? And I never, ever intend to do that at all. I mean, just a simple example the other day. Jen and I are in Carmarthen, we're going shopping, and we go into Marks and Sparks, and Jen says to me, I don't know what it is about Marks and Sparks that makes me feel old, and I said, oh, that would be the mirrors. Well, (laughs) I've still got the bruise, okay? What did did I say wrong? I mean, she's getting old. I'm getting old. We're nearly 60. Although, admittedly, I'm maturing like a fine wine. Given her response, I'm not going to tell a joke about taking my wife to the Antiques Roadshow, okay? I'm not going to go there. So let's predict the truth about you. God has given you at least one gift, but I predict you'll never know how to use it. Why? Because gifts have to be honed. Give someone a sword, it doesn't mean they know how to fight. You have to study, you have to train, you have to perfect your skill. But I predict you won't. And for two basic reasons. One, a lack of understanding, and two, a lack of seriousness. The lack of understanding is simply this. I don't have a gift. Well, hold on. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that God has only given gifts to some people. What Scripture says, he's given some gifts to some people, but he's given gifts to all of us. So, you have a gift. And also, if you haven't got a gift, what does it say about God? Imagine you're in a big family and it's Christmas Day and all the other ten siblings get gifts and you don't. What does that say about your father? Is that the kind of God we serve who will not give gifts to some of us? No. The gifts are there. So if you don't believe you've got the gift, clearly you don't understand the nature of God. But just because you know you got it doesn't mean you'll know how to use it. You might hold back from using it. You might choose not to unwrap it. You might keep it in the background due to shyness, perhaps, or fear, or whatever. And the lack of seriousness, I mean, at the end of the day, you know what? It says in Scripture this, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. When he ascended on high, he set the captives free, and he gave gifts to men. The gifts have been given at a very high price. I love that verse. It used to be called the harrowing of hell. Which sounds great, doesn't it? Jesus didn't go to hell, he went to Hades, a different place. But the harrowing of hell, he overcomes death, he releases the captives. And in his wake, in his trade, he gives out these gifts to people. So the gifts are precious, but we approach them with a lack of seriousness. I mean, we just don't really understand, I think, the price that was paid, the value that's put upon them. And the central fact is this. 
It's your gift, but it's not for you. It's for the church. I mean, in the very unlikely event, I was to give one of you this morning a thousand pound, and I was to tell you to give that money to the church next Sunday because I can't be here. What would we think of that person if they kept that thousand quid to themselves? And yet something more precious than a thousand quid has been given to each one of us. And we keep it to ourselves? I mean, it really is. It's a serious sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1 says this. Learn to love and seek after the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy, which is very relevant to this morning's word. Okay, so, do you have the gift of prophecy? Great, wonderful. Are you serious with it? Do you study the Bible? Do you read the commentaries? Do you read about the prophets in the Bible and in church history? Do you know about church history? Do you know the great changes from the early church to the church fathers to the Babylonian captivity to the Reformation, the Anabaptists, the Calvinists, the Methodists, the Evangelicals, the Revival, the Pentecostal Revival, the Charismatics? Do you know that? Or are you completely ignorant of all of that? You're not being serious if you're ignorant. Do you spend time alone with God? What does Scripture say? Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 18 to 22. Which of those prophets has stood in the presence of Yahweh to see or to hear his word? If they'd stood in my counsel, they would proclaim my words to the people. 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21. You must understand that no prophecy ever came about by the prophet's own intervention. For prophecy never had its origin, the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 23, 25, 28. How long will those among the prophets who prophesy lies and are prophets of their own delusions? Let the prophet who has had a dream tell it for a dream, and let him who receives a word deliver it accurately. What have straw and wheat in common? Is my word not like fire? Is it not like a hammer, shattering rock? The word is pretty clear. But if you don't study, the gift will remain unformed and blunt, generally useless and possibly dangerous. Because you might not be able to distinguish between the voice of the Holy Spirit and the voice of your own spirit. And all sorts of mayhem could ensue. Do you have a teaching gift? I've also thought preaching is like a subset of a teaching gift. Do you have a teaching gift? Do you study the Bible? Do you discuss the Bible with your brothers and sisters? Or are you one of those people who religiously reads two, three, four, five chapters of the Bible a day? Why? God didn't give chapters and verses in the Bible. That was put in by a drunk monk. God spoke in paragraphs when he reveals in prose, and he speaks in stanzas when he speaks in poetry. One simple example. Early Genesis has two accounts of creation, the Elohist and the Yahwehist, depending on the different names of God. The first account ends halfway through verse 4 in the second chapter. You find this time and time again in the Word of God. The chapters and the verses cut across what God is trying to communicate. And don't get me started about verse for the day, okay? That is not Bible study. At best, there's some guy in New York or London who is giving a little preach, a little homily on a verse. Don't quote verses. Goodness me, read the book. We are taught what the Bible says. We have never been taught how to find out what the Bible says. That is the greatest single failing in the church for hundreds of years. And the, the Bible is a mixture of poetry and prose and prophecy and history. They're different types of truth. And you have to have wisdom and discernment to understand what those different types of truth are. And you might say, guess what? I haven't got a teaching gift, so I don't have to listen to this bit. I can just go to sleep. Whenever you speak to a non-Christian, you teach. 
You are a priest of God, and a priest is an intermediary between God and man. So you are that priest, so you have some responsibility to be able to explain your faith to non-believers. Do you know the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Most people, I'm afraid to say, don't. I used to travel around a lot of chapels in Middle Morgan when we were doing a survey back in the, the late 70s. And you'd come into a chapel and you'd find the Ten Commandments up on the wall. And I'd look at that and go, what's that doing there? We don't follow that. We follow the two commandments that Jesus gave us. Yeah. Love the Lord your God with all your might, with all your strength and everything that was in you, and your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. We don't live by the Ten Commandments. I don't understand some of the Ten Commandments. Can anyone explain to me the Ninth Commandment? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's ass. Does that mean what I think it means? Because I tell you this now, if it does, I don't need ten, I need nine. I am never going to commit that sin. I can tell you now. But then, you know, you look at what's happening in the church. You get these Christian bakers who won't bake cakes for gay couples. Why? We're not allowed to judge people outside of the church. You're a cake baker, for goodness sake. What else are you going to do with your life other than make cakes? Seriously? You look at the Old Testament, you've got a line there that says, Thou shalt not allow a witch to live. Okay, so that was the Old Covenant. New Covenant, what did, one of the things the church did when it first assumed political power after the fall of the Roman Empire, one of the first laws it passed, anyone who accuses anyone of being a witch should be put to death. Because the church knew this. Under the New Covenant, there's only two types of people, those who are saved and those who aren't. And those who aren't, guess what? It doesn't matter whether they're pagans or witches or Jews who don't believe in Jesus or whatever. They're all going to hell. And if you start judging among them and seeing them as being the problem, do you know what? You end up doing what happened in the 16th century, where there was a witch-burning cult in Europe that killed 40,000 people. And most of those people who died, they were either Christians who wouldn't confess to being witches, which is what happened at Salem in Massachusetts, or they were people who were learning disabled, they were people, you know, on the edge of society, people whose land wanted to be appropriated by evil people. The medieval worldview is insane. Your cow dies. Why did it die? Oh, there's an old woman at the edge of the village. She put a hex on it. How do we find out if she's a witch? I tell you what, duck her in water. Water's pure. If she floats to the surface, she's a witch because the water's rejected her. But if she drowns, the water's embraced her, and so she didn't kill my cow. How much methamphetamine do you have to take to even think like that? It's very much a lose-lose for the women on the edge of the village. So how come is it when I moved to Ammonford, people said, whoa, full of witches. Tire gwaith, oh gosh. Witches everywhere. The early church was right. You know what? The evil is in our own heart. Okay, seriously. You want to see evil, you'll find it wherever you look. But that evil is inside your own heart. And then you think of the Old Testament, the attitude towards homosexuals. It says there quite clearly, if a man lieth with another man, he should be stoned. My feelings always be, it would certainly help. <laughs> Do you know what? I did that joke five years ago, and you didn't get it then either. Because <laughs> you're all so righteous, you don't understand the double meaning of the word stoned. I am pretty certain if I'd spoken those words in a Baptist church, they'd be rolling in the aisles, okay? They know what it is to be stoned. Obviously, you don't. And today, guess what? There are still some hate preachers around who think the homosexuals should be killed. Uh, let me tell you, they're not part of our faith, okay? Jesus Christ did not come to condemn, so neither should we. He who is without sin, throw the first stone. Maybe you got the gift of healing. Okay, amen. 
Problem with the gift of healing, there's nowhere to hide. If you've got the gift of prophecy, you can get away with nonsense. Gift of teaching, you shouldn't be able to get away with it, but you can, because there's so much false teaching around. Gift of healing, nowhere to go. Uh, have you got the gift of healing? Well, he's still dead. <laughs> I mean, probably you haven't got it. I mean, it is one of those gifts that is very, very transparent. And the reason, I think, why we don't see the gift of healing is because we are so willing to be conned by testimonies of false healing that God doesn't want to waste his gift on people who don't appreciate it. You know, one scripture says, do not cast your pearls before swine. Sometimes it's God that isn't throwing his pearls before swine. And we're the ones who are going, oink, oink. Okay? Scripture's pretty clear. You shouldn't believe anything unless it's on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So if I stand up here today and said I've been healed of something, I should be able to point to the doctor that can confirm it, maybe show the letter that the doctor's given or the x-ray that shows I had something and now it's gone. But we don't do that. We're very, very lax. We want to believe. But that means we're easily conned. Okay? Follow the biblical principle. Two or three witnesses. But if you do have that gift of healing, I can predict you're not going to use it. You're not going to use it for a variety of reasons. Shyness. Fear, doubt, and yet, it's a gift we need. And it's a gift that's there. It must be in this church. It must be. I, I can't believe it's not. But I wonder who's got it. I wonder if we'll ever know. I predict we won't. But do you know what? You can prove me wrong. Because this isn't the will of God, and this is not predestination. These are the choices that we are making. And choices can be changed. Second thing I want to do, predict the future of the Western church, not the Eastern church or the African church, the Western church. The falling away will continue. We're in the midst of it. They've been doing surveys for years on Christian beliefs. The key demographic are the 18 to 25-year-olds because they're the ones who get married and have kids and they pass on whatever belief they might have to the next generation. So 1900, 98% of them believed in God. 1950, 80% of them believed in God. 2000, it was down to 50%. YouGov poll last year showed that 22% of that age group believed in God. And that doesn't mean they believe in Christ. You've got to believe in God before you can believe in Christ. But there's a lot of Muslims who believe in God, but they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The most disturbing thing about that survey was this. 45% of all age ranges who profess to be Christians, 45% of them didn't believe in God. And of those people who call themselves Christians, who went to church once a month at least, 33% of them didn't believe in the resurrection. This is the great falling away, and we're in the midst of it. I mean, there's that old thing, isn't there, about a frog. Put a frog in boiling water, you'll jump out. Put a frog in cold water and turn up the heat, and you can cook it. Now, did people actually carry out those experiments? I mean, is this what they do at university? Does the RSPCA? No, I don't know. But anyway... <laughs> If we just had a massive dose of false teaching in the 50s or the 60s, we'd have jumped out. But it's been gradual. It's been slow. The heat's been slowly turned up, and bit by bit, we're losing our faith. We're losing our belief. And there's two parts to that. I think, on the one hand, you have the fundamentalists who believe everything in the Bible is literal, and then you have the liberals who believe everything in the Bible is metaphorical. But you've got to know which is which, because the Bible's got both metaphorical and literal truths, and that takes a degree of wisdom that seems to be lacking. The falling away is not the will of God, okay? That's our fault. It's a falling away in the church. It's not a falling away in the world. But God's solution to it is interesting. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 to 4. 
Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and then will the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and every object of worship, so that he will sit as God in the temple of God, showing everyone that he is God. Some people say they believe that they will see Jesus Christ return to earth. Okay? I've never felt that in myself. I've always believed I'll see the Antichrist. Always believed it. Might not be true. Can't predict it. Always believed it. Son of perdition is coming. He's coming. And God's allowing him to come because of the falling away. So let me just make this prediction. Between 33% and 75% of all people who make a commitment to Christ will go to a lost eternity. Well, that sounds like a prophecy, doesn't it? But it's not. It's actually a prediction based on the words of Jesus Christ. In the parable of the sower, 75% of the people who made a commitment didn't bear fruit. In the parable of the bridesmaids, 50% of the people who were bridesmaids, guess what? They didn't get into the wedding ceremony. And in the parable of the talents, 33% of the people who were given talents buried their talent in the ground. And the words of God through that parable are always interesting. Did you not know I am a hard man? Did you not know that I reap where I have not sown? The key issue is this. God saves us to reap from us righteousness. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is the proof of your salvation. What did Jesus say in John 15? You know, any branch that does not bear fruit will be cut off and burned. And then he turns to his disciples and says, Look, you have been pruned already by my words to bear more fruit. So the word I'm preaching this morning, I hope it hurts. I hope it's cutting into you. I hope it's a pruning, okay? I mean, the difference between a fruit tree or a rose bush in the garden and a Christian is simply this. When you approach the rose bush with a pair of secateurs, it can't uproot itself and run away, okay? But Christians often do that. I've got secateurs. I've got a chainsaw as well and a wood chipper, okay? But I'm not allowed to use those in church, okay? So we'll just leave those to one side. Just secateurs this morning. Snipping away at us. My goodness, God wants fruit from our lives. That's why we've been saved. Salvation is not for ourselves, it's for him. All glory goes to him. And we've got to ask a question sometimes. Who's in the face? Sometimes we don't know. Come in. Freud, many years ago, the psychiatrist said this. Three different aspects of the human psyche. One, the id, which is the animal side of our behavior. Two, the ego, which is our conscious side where we rationalize things. Thirdly, superego, which is our conscience. And he says human life is a battle between these three forces. But he said some people just live by the id. They just live like animals. And some Christians live like that. They live according to the pleasure principle. They just live for pleasure. Now, I've got to say, look, there's nothing wrong with pleasure. Okay, a little water fancy does you good, as it says in Proverbs or somewhere else. <laughs> the little pleasures of life are wonderful, okay? We don't have to wear a hair shirt and beat ourselves up all the time, unless you like that sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, one of my little pleasures, right? I go walking on Black Mountain, days. I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I am sore. I come home and the woman I love pours for me a lovely hot bubble bath. And I sink into it. And then she brings me a cup of tea. And I tell you what, it is such a joy. It is absolutely wonderful. It's one of those beautiful pleasures of life. It all goes to haywire when the wife comes home, of course. And then, <laughs> and then I'm running back up the mountain with bullets <laughs> winging past my ears. 
I'm reminded then of that old country and western song. I'm sure I'm missing you, honey, but my aim is getting better. <laughs> but you might say, why should I listen to an atheist Jew called Freud? Okay, well, listen to the Holy Spirit. This is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 to 22. These people are like wild animals, creatures of instinct that are born to be caught and killed. They insult what they don't understand, and like animals, they will be destroyed, suffering harm as punishment for their wrongdoing. They take pleasure in excess luxury for all to see. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceitful pleasures while they sit and eat with you. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to know it and turn their back on the holy commandment that was committed to them. The proverb is true that describes what has happened to them. A dog returns to its vomit, and a washed pig goes back to wallow in the mud. He's talking about believers who live by the pleasure principle. And that's all they want in life. And guess what? They're going to have a really hard time on the day of judgment. And you can't help think of the pleasure prim principle in the id and not also think about Donald Trump. Because surely he is the man who embodies the pleasure principle. So what do you say about the 83% of American evangelicals who voted for him? Something is wrong in the American church. And I just found out the other day, his um, son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is building a new skyscraper on Fifth Avenue in New York. And guess what the address of the skyscraper is? It's 666. You can't make this stuff up. Seriously. The devil is playing with us. Okay then, third part, predicting the future of the world. Six things I want to say about this. Firstly, we're in the age of stupid and people will continue to get dumber. 25% of Americans think that the sun revolves around the earth. 19% of Britons think the same thing. That's a good sign of stupidity. The biggest indication of stupidity I've ever heard in my entire life, which goes back a long way, actually. The composer John Cage in 1952 composed a work called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds. He'd come out and he'd stand in front of his grand piano with his coattails and his little white bow tie, and he'd do nothing. He would just sit there. It was silence. This is what he had to say about that composition. To compose a piece of uninterrupted silence, it will open with a single idea which I would attempt to make as seductive as the color and shape and fragrance of a flower. The ending will approach imperceptibility. Let me just get this straight now. This is silence, okay, for four minutes and 33 seconds. There's no flowers involved, are there? So that shows how, people, how stupid people were in 1952. And you might think, well, how can we be more stupid than that? It's simple. Now you can download it on iTunes. <laughs> on my iPod, I have Led Zeppelin. On yours, you have literally the sound of silence that you paid 99p for. And it's not the Simon and Garfunkel version either. <laughs> Secondly, war is coming. Might be between America and China, America and North Korea, America and Iran, Russia and America, Russia and the Baltic States. Could be between Turkey and Greece. The Turks are getting aggressive, and I think they might reclaim a couple of islands that they feel the Greeks have nicked from them. The real question is this. Will it go nuclear? And we don't know. Three times in my life, we have come close to nuclear oblivion. 62, 83, and 95. In each case, it was a Russian who stopped nuclear war breaking out. I don't have the same confidence with regard to Mr. Putin. So be aware, it's coming. Who knows where and who knows when? Maybe we need some prophets, perhaps you could tell us. <laughs> Thirdly, an earthquake is going to devastate Istanbul that will lead to the further radicalization of Turkey. That sounds like a prophecy, but it ain't. 
there is a 65% chance of an earthquake hitting Istanbul before 2030. Ever been to Istanbul? My advice, go and see it quickly before it disappears. Beautiful city, wonderful Roman architecture. Hagia Sophia, one of the most beautiful and oldest churches in the world is there. 15 million people live in Istanbul and the houses are rubbish. If there's a big earthquake there, 100,000, 200, 300,000 people are going to die. The city will collapse. There will be a fire. There will be a tsunami. It will be a catastrophe. And it will radicalize the Islamic elements in Turkey. Watch it. You heard it here first. Fourthly, there will be financial crises. But you know what? Capitalism is tough. It will recover. Capitalism is motivated by greed and fear. Fear is, guess what? The world's coming to an end. Sell my shares. Greed comes in, there's a buying opportunity. That's the way it always goes, okay? Warren Buffett said this, as long as people work, there'll always be wealth. And that's absolutely true. Fifthly, the population of the world will rise to 11 billion in 2100s. That is an absolute certainty, unless there's a cataclysm between now and then. But the distribution of people is interesting. Uh, North and South America have a billion in, that'll stay the same. Europe and Russia have a billion in, that'll stay the same. Asia is going to go from 4 to 5 billion. Africa is going to go from 1 billion to 4 billion. They can't feed themselves at the moment. So what is it going to be like with four times as many people on that continent? I tell you what, this is a really scary prediction. And then finally, number six, climate change will culminate in a second Permian extinction, probably around 2100, that will wipe out all life on planet Earth. Uh, you might not believe in the first Permian extinction 250 million years ago because you believe the world is only 6,000 years old. Okay, don't call it the Permian extinction. It's still going to happen, okay? And it's there. 2 Peter chapter 3 is an exact description of what happened then is going to happen again. It's going to happen, guys. I hope we're not going to be here. Maybe the prophets can tell us whether we will be or not. Revelations in poetic form describes that event in great detail. Let me just finish this particular section with a prophecy. The only prophecy this morning. It's from the Bible, from the book of Revelations. An asteroid the size of a mountain is on its way. It will land in the ocean and it will kill a quarter of the human race in half an hour. It's described as a falling star in chapter 8, verse 11, and 9, verse 1. A falling mountain in chapter 8, verse 8. A huge boulder in chapter 18, verse 21. A falling dragon, metaphorical, in chapter 12, verse 11. This is why we need the gifts. We need to know when this thing is going to happen. It's going to happen because it's the prophetic word of God. But you know what? Jesus said that Jerusalem would be destroyed. But he said this to his followers. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, run to the hills. Basically saying run to Galilee. And you will survive. Okay? When the Roman armies approached Jerusalem in AD 70, the Christians left. The Jews didn't. And a million of them died. We need to know when these things are going to happen so that we can avoid the calamity. Hey, we're going to be raptured next week. We don't need to worry, do we? If it's going to happen in 500 years' time, we don't need to worry. But if it's going to happen in our lifetime, we need to know when and we need to know how to avoid the cataclysm. And fortunately, the prophets don't seem to be around. And I just want to end with six questions which relate to this whole issue. It relates to the issue of the gifts. Where are the prophets? 
Where are the men and women of God who through prayer have access to the court of God and so hear what he intends to do? In Hebrew, the word for court is the same as the word for gossip. God gossips his intentions to his heavenly court. And if you have access to his court, you'll overhear what he says and you can pass on his words. Where are the men and the women of God who, like Elisha, can tune into God when asked a question? 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 15 says this, Now bring me someone who can play the lyre, and as the musician played, so the hand of Yahweh was laid on him, and Elisha began to prophesy. Where are the men and women of God in whom the word of God bubbles up like a spring? The Hebrew word for prophet, Nabi, written over 300 times in the Old Testament, comes from a root meaning to bubble up in poetry. Psalm 45, verse 1. A third of the Bible is poetry. If you hate poetry, you've got to hate the Bible, okay? And the poetic and the prophetic instinct are very, very similar. They always have been. Where are the men and women of God for whom the word of God becomes a burden? The word for oracle, Massah, is also the donkey's load in Exodus chapter 23, verse 5, and the weight of guilt in Psalm 38, verse 4. Prophecy is thus a burden that the prophet has to carry. Burden means feeling the way God feels about a situation. You have an emotional connection with what God is saying. Where are the men and the women of God who can give a word that is ripe for any given situation? Like the manna that went off at noon. How many prophetic words have gone off because they're old and tired and we've heard them a thousand times before? That's why we feel bad, and this is relevant to this morning. That's why we feel bad when we fail to give a word from God. It goes off inside us. And finally, where are the men and women of God who can, who can communicate the word of God with clarity so that we know what he wants us to do because there's no uncertainty in God? The scripture said, is my word not like fire and is it not like a hammer shattering rock? If you have the answers to those six questions, please put them on a postcard and send them to me. This message was brought to you by ABC Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org or search for us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also contact us by phone on 01269 59